Studios of WORQ in Wisconsin. This is the Stand Up for the Truth podcast. Today's issues, overlooked headlines, and biblical observations, equipping the remnant around the globe. Got your sword handy? This is Stand Up for the Truth. Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, you truth proclaimers and defenders, troublemakers for the kingdom of God. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for sharing the podcast. And I mean that. I, I, I know it's redundant. I say that often, but it's because of you that this gets out there to the people as we are shadow banned and censored by the big tech media conglomerate. Anyway, uh, Mary Danielson, good morning. Good morning. Uh, we are ready to jump into this podcast with a great guest today. You've probably... Heard of the movie Jesus Revolution, and you probably uh, heard maybe some of the controversies surrounding it. Maybe you don't know a lot of the details of what really happened and how much of that was actually true in the movie. Well, we've got someone who was there, and uh, we're going to introduce right now our guest today. Very special guest, first time on the podcast, although we've had his daughter on. Uh, Chuck Gerard, singer, songwriter, recording artist, worship leader, one of the pioneers of contemporary Christian music. He was co-founder and lead singer of the group Love Song, who's coming out with a documentary. We'll get to that in a few minutes. And he's born in L.A. In his teens, he formed the group The Castells, which had two national top 20 hits. And as a teenager, he shared the stage with, you know, people like Roy Orbison, Jerry Lee Lewis, Bobby V, and others. And in his early 20s, he became disillusioned with life. And this, uh, like many of his friends... And that generation, they began experimenting with drugs. This led in Chuck's life to a five-year search for God through LSD, Eastern religion, and a committed hippie lifestyle. But along with thousands of other Jesus freaks who came to be known as the Jesus Movement, Chuck's story was just getting started. And his book is called Rock and Roll Preacher, From Doo-Wop to Jesus Rock. Chuck Gerard, welcome to Stand Up for the Truth. Oh, my pleasure to be here. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Mary Danielson, uh, obviously, uh, has, has known you through Calvary Chapel. I met you there at a prophecy conference in Appleton, Wisconsin. We just wrapped up one uh, last weekend. But uh, we are just so thankful to have you on. And as I mentioned in the intro, we are so blessed to um, obviously have you on today, but also to have had on Elisa Childers, who is your daughter. What an amazing woman of God. So you did something right. Actually, you did a lot of things right, Chuck. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, she's become quite the uh, the rock star in the uh, apologetic yeah. field. And also having a bit of you know her time with uh, Zoe Girl, so she's been yeah. a, in music and now uh, an author. Yeah, very, very cool. Amazing, amazing. So um, Mary and I have been going through the book, A Rock and Roll Preacher. We've got a lot of questions to ask you, but first... We want to talk about Love Song, the documentary. They're working on that. It says on the website, coming soon. And the website, friends, is lovesongtheband.com. Tell us, well, we didn't even you know, t talk about Love Song. Tell us about the band, about the documentary, and where it's at in completion. Yes, well, we're feverishly trying to get it finished so that we can ride some of the wave of the Jesus Revolution movie in mm -hmm. which our band is featured yes. as one of the... Uh, parts of the movie 
And uh, we started it, just long story short, we started it a few years back. We went through a few false starts and different directions that weren't correct and, and finally landed on a full documentary. And uh, it's just going to be fantastic. Uh, right now we're working on three one-hour episodes. We don't know how we'll wind up marketing it, but oh. we know at least that will be on the DVD. We'll have the full wow. three hours. And uh, we're in, uh, we just finished uh, what we call, there are three segments, the uh, episodes, and uh, episode two is almost finished, and then we're working toward uh, getting three done so that we can, um, we still haven't shopped it, we still don't have distribution, but we're having a thing here in Tennessee uh, this month where we're going to show the first chapter to some folks that mm. might want to invest and all that. So if people want to get involved, just go to lovesongtheband.com, and there's a place there for you to uh, see, see, I think, a trailer, and uh, yep. I, they're updating yeah. that right now, so I don't know uh, how soon that all the new information will be up, but how they can help if they would like to, because uh, it is a non-profit deal. We're doing it by donations, and um, people can participate. Yeah, Chuck, um, I know it started out, you, you guys had filmed a concert. That was the original intent, right, to have a just the concert footage and have it be that. And what, what made you, of course, you have such a rich history, what, but what made you decide to, to do uh, a little more vintage, a little more bio of the band and all that sort of thing? And, and also then, who is, uh, who's producing it and who's directing it? Yeah, well, um, it started out, yes, it was. A, uh, in 2017, we, did a, we filmed a concert. And uh, <clears throat> when we got in the process of... Uh, Putting it together, we started thinking, wouldn't it be cool if we interviewed some people who were, you know, influenced by the band? And so Michael W. Smith and other people, we interviewed a bunch of people. What we wound up with was when we did a test um, showing, uh, a lot of the younger people especially said, look, we, we like the uh, old guys playing, but we'd rather see vintage footage. We'd rather see the history. <laughs> and so did some of the older folks. Hmm. So we shifted into full documentary mode. Uh, the the actual kind of head producer is Ron Strand, who has a coffee house in Orange County called the Upper Room, mm, okay. and uh, that was he 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 financed and uh, um, put together the the first shooting, the first uh, shoot for the concert, <clears throat> and then we got a director on board later on that I think we found through Tommy Coombs named Jerry Stanley, who has been totally committed to this project. He's been editing for 15 months now. Mm. And uh, just so it's just, I mean, he must know every line by by heart of hours and hours of footage. So, uh, yeah, that's where we're at. And um, it's kind of like a bunch of guys that have never made a movie making a movie. You know, we're not uh, Lionsgate where we have a problem. We can say, send it to legal or yeah. send it to the art department. We are the legal. We are. So we're figuring it out as we go along. But uh it's been a, quite an education, and it's going to be a very, very excellent. Here's where I think it differs. Like, the Jesus Revolution is uh, highly dramatized. Our uh, piece will be uh, the Jesus Revolution told through the story of our band, which was there at the very beginning. So we we lived these things. We lived the Jesus Revolution. And so mm -hmm. our stories are, you know, not dramatized. Let's put it that way. So it's kind of the facts, Jack, uh, behind the Jesus Revolution movie, which is wonderful, but again, highly dramatized. So we're looking forward to getting this uh, this side of of the, um, the the real story out. Mm -hmm. So, Chuck, I think, as you said, I think it's good timing at, because of the success of Christian films over the last several years and also because of Jesus' revolution. And one thing before we get back to, you know, the beginning, uh, before you were saved and hear about your testimony, 
I saw a program on one of the regular uh, cable channels <laughs> on TV that was about the Jesus music. And you were in that. You were interviewed for that. And it did show some of the Jesus movement. And it showed you guys, the love song, and, and the, some of the early pioneers, Andre Crouch, Phil Keggy, Brian Duncan. And, and it showed an interview with Michael W. Smith, who, who was giving you guys an award, I believe. And I want you to tell us about that. And he said, I would not be where I am today if it were not for love song. Michael W. Smith said that. So tell us about that. And I mean, that, those are high accolades. Yeah, it's true. Well, it was quite, um, what's the word, almost um, surprising and <laughs> wonderful to hear the different testimonies. He's not the only one that said similar things. Brian Duncan said he traveled all the way from East Coast to, the, to, to hang out with these hippies he saw on this album called Love Song. Hmm. So uh, as we interviewed these guys, we found out that we were a large part of their backstory because really the truth is we were really the first band of any prominence, and, and so we were you know, kind of a role model for bands to come for a little while. And the, the, this, the problem is that our band wasn't together for very long, so we didn't have a 20-year tenure of putting albums out, you know, year after year. And so uh, for some people, we faded out of history. That's why the Jesus Revolution movie is so good for us, because uh, the, the Irwin brothers understand our place in, in the history of Christian music, and they've really honored us, and we're really blessed that they have, uh, you know, they could have made it a generic band and a hippie band from Calvary Chapel, but they they actually called us Love Song in the movie, so it's been very good mm. for us in that regard. Now, the the documentary you're talking about is called The Jesus Music. And yes. When I first mm-hmm. connected with the Irwin Brothers, they asked to interview myself and Tommy here in Nashville, and they interviewed us at quite a length, a couple hours each. We, we interviewed separate days, but, uh, you know, it was quite a bit of content, and... Um, the first thing I noticed about them was they knew about our documentary and they were so um, so sharing. They said you can use any of this footage for free awesome. in your documentary. That's huge. I yes. mean, that's really hardly anybody would want to do that. So uh, that that really mm. uh, gave me a great respect for the way they approach things and, yes. and their Christianity and all that. But uh, their original plan was to do kind of a Ken Burns six or seven episodes mm. on the, the full history of the Jesus music. And I think where the error came, in my opinion, was just calling it the Jesus music, because that was sort of the, that was our name, the first couple of years of music. And so a lot of people that, uh, from my generation that saw the documentary were disappointed that it wasn't more about the early artists and Lester yes. T. Faith and, and all those artists were not represented. And I think a more accurate title would have been something like a, you know, a thumbnail history of the, the music of the Jesus movement. And then people would have a different expectation. Mm-hmm. I feel the same way about Jesus Revolution. I think they should have subtagged it, uh, the story of Greg Laurie because yes. a lot of people went yes. into the movie thinking it was kind of a, at least a somewhat documentary. And uh, it's quite fictionalized. Right. And I think the expectation would have been different if they'd have uh, approached it that way. But anyhow, we all do what we do. And <laughs> the bottom line is it's all good stuff to be out there. Yeah. And I think both films are worth seeing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just really quick, uh, Chuck Gerard, did you feel uh, pressure when the band started taking off and you guys were just trying to learn about Jesus and glorify him with your music and you got Pastor Chuck Smith's uh, stamp of approval, and you're playing at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. The the crowds are getting bigger, and your and other bands are starting to come alongside you guys. 
what were the what was the pressure or the expectations like? Was that was that even an issue for you? Well, God shielded us from a lot of the controversy. We, you know, we we understood that there were p- people that didn't think it was. Uh, what's going to happen here when these long hairs get on stage? Is this going to be something we can uh, endorse and, and and receive? Uh, but there was a lot of that that we were shielded from, and, and it was a whirlwind. I have to tell you, it was so fast we didn't have almost time to think. We went from being kind of like what we thought was the house band at Calvary, and then as soon as the media got on board, mm-hmm. our our star rose with the media attention at, at Calvary Chapel, and then we started getting invitations to go out. We Ultimately, we did one re, real tour of the United States, because I, as I say, we were only together for three years. But it was so fast. Actually, it was part of what uh, caused us to break up was that we were technically we were raised up as novices. You know, we we, we looked heavy. You know, <laughs> we looked like these sage uh, wise men from the past, from the Bible days or something. So I think people viewed us as, boy, these guys must be deep. They must really know the Bible. And really, we were just baby Christians exactly. out there trying to, you know, learn, learning as we went. <laughs> and so at the end of the three years, our attitude was, you know, we've never really understood what it means to just be in church and be a Christian. And we felt like it would be a good thing for us to disband for at least a season. So the way we approached it was we said, Lord, we, we feel like we need a different experience for a while, and we're going to disband. And if it's not your will, make us miserable. And if it is your will, make us uh, comfortable about it. And we all <laughs> felt comfortable, and we went on with our own lives. Wow. But we never closed the door to that wineskin, as I say. We mm-hmm. were always around uh, Chuck Smith did many reunion concerts and over the years we played and in fact that's what happened in 2017 we got back together to do the concert at the upper room which resulted in the uh, the first video of the concert so yeah it was a whirlwind i mean honestly the the church grew from 200 to 2000 in about 4 months time wow when we got there that first night when we played we came into Calvary Chapel we, we loved Lonnie because he looked like Jesus, and we thought, well, we look like Pink Floyd. <laughs> we have this music. Maybe Pastor will let us play. So we met with Pastor Chuck. Uh, he took us out to the sanctuary. He was very gracious, but I don't think he was really inclined to let us play because we'd only been Christians for about three weeks. But after he interviewed us for, uh, you know, 20 minutes or so, he said, uh, play me a song. So we played a song called Welcome Back, which didn't even really relate to him lyrically because... It was about, you know, losing your first love and coming back and all this. But there was an anointing on it, I believe, that touched his heart. And the yep. next thing we heard was, can you guys play tonight? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's youth night and Lonnie's preaching. So, wow, this was like a dream come true. And we said, well, our guitar player is doing weekends in Orange County Jail, but he gets out about six. <laughs> so we'll pick him up and we'll come play. And we did. <laughs> And the place, it wasn't, I'm, I want to be clear, it wasn't because we played, but it was, mm-hmm. I think that we were one of the last elements to be in place mm-hmm. as God just kind of pulled the trigger on the whole thing. And, and the hippies brought friends in great numbers. We had altar calls. People would, would think we're exaggerating, but 50 to 60% of the audience in any given night would come to the front sure. for first-time conversions. And that's what led to those huge ocean water baptisms and the whole thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was quite... Quite an experience for uh, a bunch of baby Christians. Wow. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was it was a, a positive thing though. We loved it, and we were learning as we went. Uh, it was just a beautiful time in the Lord. 
Well, I love how the Lord just seemed to lead this whole thing. And I want to talk a little bit about your personal uh, early story, but I just want to make uh, read this quote here from your bio, and I love this. Um, and this, to me, sums up a lot of that time. When you ask somebody what our songs are about, there is no ambiguity. It's right up there in plain language with no deep intellectual vibes. What we're saying is, Jesus, one way. If you want the answer, follow it. I mean, that's just such a beautiful simplicity of the music. Mm. But uh, what I want to do, Chuck, is I want to ask you a little bit about, I mean, you, you know, as I look through your book, well, I've read it twice now. So um, y- your life is a cultural Kodak moment. It really is. You know, suburban 50s uh, life. Um, your mom, um, you know, you had lost your dad at a young age. Your mom had remarried. Your mom had kind of gone with a little bit of a new age bug. But she was your biggest supporter. But then I want to ask you a little bit about, um, you know, what what happened for the music bug to bite you, I guess is my question, because you had had some piano lessons, you were taught classically, like a lot of us were as kids, we had piano lessons, and so we just learned, you know, there was really no chord structure or anything, it was just piano, and then all of a sudden, um, the music bug just sort of bit you when you were young, you know, you had the doo-wop, and then you sat down with a uh, friend of your sister, and she was playing these basic chords, was that kind of the moment when you knew you wanted to play instruments and make music? Well, it kind of was, that first, uh, incident in san francisco uh we lived near right near hay ashbury before it was hay ashbury and uh this friend of my sister's came over and she played those those basic chords from heart and soul you know well that's the basic root the that's the dna of rock and roll and something off inside me it's hard to explain but it was like man it's like those are my chords i gotta do something with that Mm -hmm. and that's when i started to learn piano i mean i've taken some lessons but uh, that's when I started learning on my own and trying to train my ear. And then another great moment, the, the doo-wop music really interested me. My sister had, my older sister had brought home these 78s of these great doo-wop songs like The Still of the Night. And I love that mm-hmm. sound. But what really, really kind of electrified me was Elvis Presley, the first time I heard Elvis. And I, I heard a song called I Want You, I Need You, I Love You. And I thought that was all she wrote. I thought, I can't be him. <laughs> But I want to do something like that with my life. And then my first 45 record was A Rose and a Baby Ruth by George Hamilton IV, who was actually a country singer. A lot of the country singers were crossing over into pop music because they saw that it was rock and roll was happening. And you had Conway Twitty and all these people that had pop records all of a sudden. And I love that song. I love the sound of it. was a little simple little ballad about a... a you know, a guy that's got a girlfriend and he wants to give her a gift, so he gives her a rose and a baby Ruth. It's very touching. <laughs> and it had all the cool little effects, you know, the little echo on his voice. And, yeah, then I got really, really motivated to uh, to be a part of this scene, and I put my first group together in choir class in Santa Rosa High School, and we went to Hollywood and got a record contract and all the cool stuff that was, you know, if you want to, if you want to see a little slice of my life, watch the movie, That Thing You Do, which I think mm-hmm. was Tom, Tom Hanks movie yeah. was filmed in Modesto. Now I lived in Santa Rosa, but it was the same experience. Uh, that was my life in film pretty much. So that's how I was raised. And what a, what a, a, a rush, as we used to say, to actually get a record contract and have songs on the radio. So yeah, that was, uh, uh, amazing for a young guy that was basically a fan to all of a sudden be a part of this world that I love so much. Wow. Well, and when the Beach Boys got started, I mean, they had not even hit any stride whatsoever, and you were playing somewhere was it with the Castells, and, and they wanted your autograph. Is that how that went? 
this is true. Yeah, we used to we used to do these sock hops, and they called sock them. And you didn't really you didn't really actually play. You lip synced the actual record, even to the, you had a microphone in front of you, and it may have been live. Uh, and you, you know, I forget exactly what they did, but the kids got to see you, you know, in the building. Uh, I wouldn't say live, but you know, they got to yeah. see you in person, and then DJs would would MC them. Uh, the uh, events and the Beach Boys were on this one event and they were nobody at that point. They, they hadn't, their record hadn't even come out yet. That wow. first one called Surfing. And so they were playing that night and our record was already on the radio. And one of them came up to me. I think, you know, I couldn't swear to it. I think it was Brian Wilson, but I didn't know him well enough to really know it could have been any one of them. And I just, they came up and they liked Saturday, liked our record, and would I sign an autograph for them? Oh, so I did. So fun yeah. is that? That's just quite fun. a story. Yeah. <laughs> that would have been a fun Kodak moment if someone could oh, have yeah. captured that. Um, uh, Chuck, tell us about right before you got saved and everything just blew up with you know love song uh, being at Calvary Chapel and everything. Um, in your bio, it mentions you're experimenting with LSD and mentions Eastern religion. Um, were you just searching? I mean, it doesn't sound like from the way you grew up you were immersed in any uh, religious uh, affiliation, or were you? Yeah. Well, I was. I was raised Catholic, but it was very okay. dis. Uh, what's the word? Uh, dark for me. It was not a great experience. We're very legalistic. It was my. I don't believe that any of my parents or my grandparents or my parents were actually born again. It was. You know, we were born Catholic, we go to church on Sunday, and that's all she wrote. Mm-hmm. And some of the doctrine then was, uh, this sounds like a joke, but I was dead serious about it. Um, you know, if you ate meat on Friday, then you it was a mortal sin, they called it. That's and right. you would go to hell if you didn't confess it before mm-hmm. you died. So I thought, if I'm going to hell for eating meat, I'm going to hell for whiskey and women. And I went out and... I rejected the whole thing and went off. I was about probably about oh, 18 at that time, and I went off to, to start my group and be in the world, and I rejected all that at that point. So I was w- without faith, feeling condemned. I felt I was going to hell, uh, but I was going to have a good time on my way, was my, my and, and, you know, dead serious again. Yeah. And uh, got into the music thing and kind of blocked all that out at that point. Yeah. Well, what about the Eastern religion? What what was your uh, dabbling in that as far as um Yeah, well, searching? what happened, t- t- this is a sensitive part of the story because um, there's a catalyst in everyone's life. God uses, I believe God uses everything. In fact, some people just, a little side trip here for a second, uh, I believe that that God used Jesus Christ Superstar, the, the play, the record in a lot of people's lives to draw them to Jesus. Hmm. Because I don't think God sits there and think, well, I've got to get some Christian thing to this guy. You know, you're dying of, you know, drugs, taking heroin or whatever. God just wants to get you whatever whatever he can use, he'll use. And so uh, at that point, uh, I hear I was hearing about the hippie movement was just beginning to get publicity. And I, I especially hate Ashbury. And I remember seeing an article in one of the big you know, Look or Life or something where there was a hippie. They had taking some pictures of these kids living in, in Haight-Ashbury and gone into some of the homes. And there was a picture of a kid looking into a, a light bulb as if he was seeing the universe. And I was thinking, what is making these people grow their hair long and trying to look like Jesus and saying they see the universe inside a light bulb? <laughs> so I got very curious about Now, up until this point, I was in music. Mm-hmm. 
but it was all alcohol for me at that point. I started drinking when I was 15, and so that was my drug of choice. And then all of a sudden, uh, I got a hold of marijuana and ultimately the, the LSD. I did get a cap of LSD, and I wasn't an observer. I wanted to find out what these guys were about, what mm-hmm. was going on with them. So kind of what turned on that light bulb for me was L- my first LSD trip. Is all of a sudden, and why I have to be careful is, it is a counterfeit experience, but yet there's a reality to it that you really do connect, in a sense, with, with the spirit world. And all of a sudden, I just saw that there was more to life than just one this one dimension that I've been dwelling in all these years. And that excited my my desire to find out who the real God was. And then that led me into all the stuff that was, was going on in the culture at that time. You know, Timothy Leary had emerged, and he was preaching his little gospel thing, and we had the Aquarian gospel in different hippie circles, and the Urantia book, and all these different Eastern philosophies, George Harrison coming out and saying that he now was a Hindu or whatever. And yeah. uh, so so the whole, all of a sudden, spirituality was, was in the in the in the news mm-hmm. and that had not been the case up to that point you know when we were raised in the 50s you didn't talk about politics or religion it was taboo so all of a sudden now everybody's talking about god so i got connected with a bunch of like-minded hippies it was just sort of a, one of those providential things and jay truax and some of the guys that ultimately became part of love song were part of that little hippie-seeking group, and we were all studying uh, all this stuff together, and the Bible. We couldn't, dis- you know, the Bible to us was was extremely important. We didn't dismiss it just because we'd had, I'd had a, I didn't at least, because uh, I'd had a bad experience with, with Christianity when I was younger. I, I felt like this was, this needed to be explored as well. So at that point, we were just trying to, um, to find, you know, find it all out. And we did, I, what was weird, like kind of ironic for me is I didn't even really know if there was a God at this point, but yet I was praying to him. You know, mm. If you're there, guide me kind of thing. Wow. <laughs> and he did. And little by little, what, what I think is always unique about our, uh, most of everybody in the group, a love song, uh, was that our, our journey was not really through some hippie giving us a track till the very end. At that point, then God did get people involved, and we started to hear about Calvary Chapel. But up to that point, it was just a bunch of people with a bunch of books and the Holy Spirit guiding us, I believe, with all my heart. He guided us through all those years. There weren't that many years, two or three years of these, this search till we ultimately wound up you know, finding Jesus and the real, the real God that was in the Bible. So, yeah, it was, uh, again, a whirlwind kind of thing that was, uh, uh, you know, self-schooled, all just reading together, discussing together, finding, finding it out together, and all of us winding up at the same conclusion at the end, which was pretty cool, too. Friends, we're speaking with Chuck Gerard, uh, one of the pioneers of uh, actually the Jesus music and contemporary Christian music, which is what it led to. And we uh, just got kind of like a, a con- condensation of uh, Chapter 9, Becoming a Hippie, in the book, Rock and Roll Preacher, which we're going to talk more about when we come back from our break. But true or false, Chuck Gerard, were you on American Bandstand? <laughs> yes, sir, True. <laughs> we were, and we can, we cannot find a copy of it. Anymore. Oh my goodness! That, if that... you go in, if you go into there's there's a kind of a a thing a, a record of who you can find the thing where who appeared what day, and we're there. 
It shows we appeared, but we, we can never find a copy of it. But we were on in Philadelphia with Dick Clark. Wow. The day we were on, Kennedy gave a speech, and we were preempted. Oh. So all of our friends in California that were wanted to see it live, we, were, they were all having parties and going to watch us on American Bandstand. It, it got preempted and showed later at a later date. And actually, when we filmed it, the kids weren't even in the you know uh, audience. It was just Dick Clark oh, and, and us, and they filmed the musical segment, and then they put it in later into the live show. So it was a little disappointing in that regard. But yes, we were on American Bandstand. <laughs> was that as the Hondells? The Hondells? No, that that was the, the Castells. Castells. Okay. okay. Wow. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a storied history. We've got so much more to talk about from the book, Rock and Roll Preacher. And also, friends, we encourage you to check out lovesongtheband.com. There's a great promo there, a trailer, and they're putting together a documentary. You can be a part of that. You can check out the information. You can even donate, and that's at lovesongtheband.com. Chuck Gerard will be right back. We will be right back. We've got to take a break. But when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Jesus Revolution We'll talk about the influences on Chuck's the early days and just talk about his journey and then up to today. Um, now he's been, you know, being at conferences and, and just making uh, appearances that way. But a lot to get to in the meat of the book, Rock and Roll Preacher. So we'll be right back with Chuck Gerard on Stand Up for the Truth. Keep it right here. Our social media pages are shadow banned. Thanks for your prayers and sharing our posts at StandUpForTheTruth.com. Today's guest, Chuck Gerard, singer, songwriter, recording artist, worship leader, one of the pioneers of Jesus music, contemporary Christian music, uh, famous for the band Love Song, the Castells, the Hondells. And Chuck, let's go back briefly to Jesus Revolution. A lot of our listeners have seen the movie I don't want to say many, but some were disappointed, as some of them knew of the move, the Calvary Chapel uh, movement, the hippie movement, and some knew their pastors who were there. Uh, you were there. I don't want to put you on the spot and have you grade the movie, but I do want to ask you uh, your take on what you felt was accurate and what you were disappointed by, if you could sum that up for us. Sure, as you can imagine, I've had this question a lot since the movie mm-hmm. came out. Yeah, right. yeah. This whole subject. Mm-hmm. But here's the deal: I give the movie a high grade as a movie. Uh, it, it's, I think, it's really evangelistic, and uh, it's got a gospel message, and I encourage people to see it. But here was, it took me a while to adjust. When I first went in, the first time I watched it was on a uh, um, um, closed circuit kind of a, you know. A, streaming thing that you had to have a code to get in to see it on your computer Mm. from Lionsgate. And uh, it took me about a third of the movie to realize this is not a documentary. (laughs) There's so much uh, dramatization in this movie. So then I, you know, I kind of lightened up and I got into the idea. What I wish they'd have done, okay, uh, first of all, I think they should have um, subtitled it, uh, the Jesus Revolution, the story of Greg Laurie, because then the expectation of the audience would have been a bit different. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it also would have been cool if they had just fictionalized everybody and said, based on a true story, uh, Pastor Chuck Jones and and Meharry the Hippie, <laughs> you know, and just make it fictional people, and then it, they could have done whatever they wanted. Yep, yeah. But uh, when you're try, trying to, to see the, you know, when you're looking at it and you're thinking about knowing the real story and the real people, uh, there's a lot of stuff that was inaccurate. In fact, just going to my section of the movie, 
we didn't meet Lonnie in a coffee shop. You know, I told the story, I think, of how we, uh, you know, we went into the, uh, to the sanctuary and Chuck listened to us and we got invited to play that night. So, uh, those kind of things were disappointing to me throughout the movie. There was a lot of that, uh, fabrication of, of the, the facts, but, and, I, you know, then my attitude was, you know, the real story would have been just as exciting and it wouldn't have cost you any more to film mm-hmm. it the correct way. Why didn't you do that? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what a lot of people are feeling that, especially the ones that lived it and, and knew, knew the, the, the actual facts behind it. The characterization of some of the people, you know, I don't recall Chuck Smith being ever really that insecure about the fact that his church wasn't growing, like sitting there, you know, right. against nails, why isn't my church growing? That's right. Chuck was a pretty confident guy. I mean, we all had our moments of weakness, but Chuck, in my opinion, Chuck was the kind of guy that would have pastored five people for the rest of his life. His concern was, am I in God's will? Mm. And then when Lonnie came by... Um, Lonnie didn't really school him, like it says in the movie. Well, Chuck, if you just get, <laughs> open your mind. I told Chuck Smith to his face about 2010 when we went back on the road with him. I said, Chuck, you're the most open-minded, closed-minded man I've ever met. <laughs> and, and I explained to him, you know, when it came to doctrine, he was very closed-minded. He was almost like the overprotective parent. Mm. And he just wanted, if it wasn't in the Bible, he wasn't going to teach it, and he didn't want you to learn it. But yet, when it came to the culture, he was very open-minded. I mean, here's this kind of straight guy, right? His radar was not music. He didn't, I mean, he loved uh, our band musically, too. But what he loved about our band was he felt the the power of God on, on our songs. And the reason he asked us to play wasn't because he thought this was a great song, but he thought this is really powerful and, and people need to hear it. So that was more where he was coming from in regard to all of that. And he was very experimental. Uh, one of the stories I like to tell is that uh, we lived above a garage for a, a short season for about a month. And there was some couple in the church that heard about it, and they, they were empty nesters. And they put us up. They took us in for about a year, maybe longer, uh, a couple named Dean and Jean Gilbert. And so we lived in their home, and they supported us so we could go out and minister freely and not worry about rent and all that stuff. And Chuck used to uh, call us up on the spot. He'd call us up, on, you know, 4 o'clock on a Thursday and say, you know, I'm coming by 5 o'clock, we're going out to Riverside, we'll have a meeting at 7. So one night he calls, and our drummer answers the phone, and we just hear it from one side. Yeah, what time, blah, blah. So he hangs up the phone, and we say, well, what time does Pastor Chuck want us there? And our drummer says, he doesn't want us, he just wants me. He wants me to bring my drums and do a drum solo in church. <laughs> <laughs> well, even we were a little shocked. I yeah. mean, we were, we were the open-minded ones. We thought, what yeah. is he thinking, oh, a drum yeah. solo in church? And yet it was one of the most powerful things I'd ever seen, as John gave this beautiful drum solo and then gave his testimony afterward, and we actually incorporated it into our presentations after that for years. So he was he was that way. He was experimental. He didn't need to be led by Lonnie. Uh, so a lot of that was fabricated. Yeah. But like you say about he didn't wash the feet of the hippies, uh, half that story is true, that they kept the hippies out in the lobby and because uh, they didn't want to get the carpet ruined. And it, he didn't actually, what he actually said was, if that's going to be a problem, we'll take the carpet out tomorrow. You know, that was his attitude. The yeah. carpet's not as important as these kids. That's right. And then I thought it was a kind of a good touch, actually, that they did the foot washing scene, because that's kind of a legend. I don't believe it happened, as you said, but um, it, it worked in the movie. So there were some things they did that I was I thought were good touches. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it was uh, largely fictionalized. So mm-hmm. there are a lot of disappointing things. And then, of course, 
they didn't address any of the negative stuff about Lonnie's life, and probably rightfully so. That wasn't really an issue in the story. So for me, it was it gets good grades, and I'm glad it's doing well, and it's really helped us and probably will help our documentary when that comes out. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the movie, and I think um, what I love about this, I really believe it was a work of the Lord because the fruit remains. You know, all these years later, yeah. there are all these Calvary chapels. You know, I'm fruit of that. A lot of people I know are fruit of that. And so, you know, we don't know about revivals that happen today. We don't know what the fruit's going to be, but we know the fruit from this. And I think that yes. that makes it really spectacular. And the baptism scene was wonderful. And so, if, uh, yeah. By the ocean? Yeah, by the ocean. And yeah. if two people got saved because they were touched by that, you know, I'm really good with that. You know, I don't know. Yeah, and too. we will find out. But um, I enjoyed it, and I really, really appreciate your insights, Chuck, because yeah. it's great to hear it from you. Absolutely. And if you don't mind, I'd like to just go back a little bit here. Yes, um, sure. Uh, chapter 9, Becoming a Hippie. And this, um, you know, as someone who really likes to observe history and the culture and where we're at. You, you, you open by saying, throughout my secular career, I had always been pretty conventional looking. The groups I, I was in always had short haircuts, and it was common to wear matching uniforms, suits, slacks, matching coats. I mean, that was part of the early music. I don't know if that was just, Absolutely. you know, because rock and roll was also disparaged considerably by churches at those times, you know, Elvis, and, you know, it's evil, and it's of the devil, and all that. So I think this was, you know, you had the Beatles and the Beach Boys all looking very conservative, and then all of a sudden they weren't. And I found that real interesting, that we were all sort of in a collective journey, a collective tide that brought us to a certain point. So I'm going somewhere with this. Now, LSD also was part of this collective journey. We talked about it just a little bit earlier. LSD seemed to be used, and you can tell me if this is true or not, to search, but also it seemed to amplify the search so that by the time you got to the point where you were seeing God's power, I think the Lord made his power manifest to, to the young people so that they would know the difference um, you know, between what they were doing and what God was doing. Do you, do you feel that there was a lot of different ways that it was a powerful time that God was moving, you know, the house churches and all that, if they needed food or something to eat or someplace to live, God was right there, you know, meeting those needs. Did you sense an incredible move? How did that manifest itself in in your experience? Well, you have to realize that I didn't, you know, when I came into Christianity, this uh, had already begun. The the Mm. bubbling under was about 68 I wasn't a Christian until 70, okay. so I can't really observe it from that, that viewpoint. What I will tell you, and this may be a little off the qu- point of the question, but what was happening with the LSD thing was that I've observed that this was like this, maybe one of the only times, certainly with the amount of the numbers of people involved in the hippie movement, where the whole world was driven by a single counterculture. You know, everybody was into the hippie thing, whether you were hippie or not, you were watching it. <laughs> Mm. And then the drug scene emerged, and then what what really galvanized it or pushed it along was the affirmation of these musicians, uh, the Beatles and Bob Dylan. We took LSD, we're like you, uh, hey, they're on our trip, uh, and we were looking to them for messages and guidance, and they didn't have anything really, you know, but we didn't know that at the time. Mm -hmm. So for me, I think an important observation is that around 1969, just as it was for me and my friends, a lot of people came to the end of that road of where music could take us, where the hippie movement, where drugs. One of the things I think you're getting at, Mayor, is that uh, we started realizing that we we wanted to have the high, if you will, without the drugs. We felt like mm. this is a great experience, but we're still taking a drug. Maybe this really isn't the fullness of God. 
we need to see what this would be like if we weren't mm-hmm. taking drugs. So then, of course, combined with getting busted for drugs and having that hanging us over our heads at different points toward the end there. So it, it, to me, it was God engineering the whole thing toward the end of the 60s. And like I was born again in February of 1970, where we came to the this pinnacle, we had no place left to go. We were at the edge of the cliff. Where do we go from here? And then, of course, we're starting to hear about Calvary Chapel. We start to hear about Jesus from other hippies. We realize that they had something a little more advanced than where we were. If you'd asked me my religion at that point, I'd have said, well, I'm mostly Christian because we boiled it down at that point, at least I had. Mm-hmm. And um, But, you know, you can't be mostly Christian anymore than you can be mostly married. Mm-hmm. So we didn't realize that, but what we were saying is we've really kind of landed on Christianity. We haven't figured it out yet. We haven't defined Jesus' role in the thing. We haven't got all, the, all our ducks in a row yet, but this is where we're headed. And then so we were kind of low-hanging fruit, for these huge altar calls and things. And, mm-hmm. you know, as as you know, we have this one song that says, with one hand, reach out to Jesus, with the other, bring a friend. All the hippies did that, at least speaking from the Calvary Chapel experience. Everybody was telling their friends. They were filling up the room every night with non-believers. It wasn't the same hippie kids coming every night. You had to be there an hour and a half early to get into most services if you wanted a seat, because wow. so many new people were coming every night. So that was kind of the atmosphere when I got saved. I don't really know what the church, you know, the the thing in the movie about the disgruntled elders and all that, Mm -hmm. I never saw anybody like that. All the people that I knew that were in in the government of Calvary Chapel, and they had elders, they were all very pro the whole thing. And I asked Chuck years later, when we toured in 2010, we went all over the nation with Chuck one more time before Chuck died. We didn't know he was going to die, but... Uh, it was a really cool experience for all of us because he had been chained to his desk for so long that now all of a sudden he could get out and, um, you know, see see his peeps. And some of these young kids had never, ever met the Pope, you know, of, of, <laughs> of Calvary Chapel. So it was great for everybody. And, um, you know, we were, uh, it was a, a time of, I forget where I was going with that point, but... Um, well, I've, I've got something, before we run out of time here with you, Chuck Gerard, yeah, I've got a question. Yeah. I, I, chapter 15, I, I would love for you to share the story about you guys performing at Oral Roberts University. Talk, talk about a fascinating picture. You've got these hippies showing up <laughs> and all these really well-dressed people. What kind of function was it, and what was the result after you guys were done playing? Please share that. I believe I believe it was a senior prom or a graduation, one of the two. And or are you? thing you have to realize at ORU. Yeah. We didn't ever we didn't ever vet where we played. We didn't even know half the time we didn't oh Oral Roberts. We didn't maybe not even knew what that was. Oh, it was man. possible. <laughs> so we would just say yes because we we thought if the phone rang that we were, that was God, you know, we were supposed to go there. Yeah, right. So there were a lot of situations we played. Uh I think something that I need to stay here. I will get to ORU in just about one minute. Yeah. But we, music was never, it was always the means, not the end. So if we went into a conservative church, we would play soft music for them because we knew they weren't going to respond to the sure. drums and the, and the electric guitars. Yet, if we went up to Berkeley and we were playing on the Berkeley campus, we'd bring out all the guns, we'd play jam for 20 minutes, and then preach straight gospel. So when we got to uh, Oral Roberts, part of the problem was that we we didn't, really have a a hotel or anything and the people where we were supposed to stay weren't home 
<laughs> so we were hanging out in their front yard. We couldn't even go in to get our suitcases open to clean up. Oh. So we come to the event and we're just kind of grody from the road and we're all dressed up, the, you know, in hippie clothes. And they're all in, in prom or, or, you know, whatever the event was. And they're all dressed up to the nines. But as always happened, what was so cool about it was, I don't even know how we got invited there or why they let us play after they saw what we looked like. <laughs> but they did. And Earl Roberts was sitting right in the front. I'll never forget it. And he was visibly moved. Mm. He came up afterward, and he was just shaking our hands and telling us how powerful it was and how blessed he was. And that was a very common occurrence. Mm. We had another situation with a full gospel businessman where they didn't want us to play very quickly the story it's a great story and when when he finally i think it was bob mumford brought us some of you guys remember mm -hmm. bob mm -hmm. and he was our advocate he wanted to get us playing wherever he could so he finally convinced the guy to let us do one song so we're getting ready to go on and the head of this event he grabs tommy coombs by the shoulder he says one song no talking <laughs> and so we got out there and we played welcome back and the place came unglued oh man as it often did i'm not bragging i'm just yeah. telling you Wait. it was always powerful so we watched this wave of people weeping from one side to the other and now the guy comes out with a microphone the guy one song no talking <laughs> tell us your testimonies all of a sudden now he's got to get a piece of the action and that happened time after time because we were very – I really believe that's part of why God raised us up to be kind of the, uh, in a way, sort of the poster boy band because we had that sensitivity. It wasn't – we weren't trying to sell rock and roll. We were out there to preach Jesus. And yeah. uh, so that's what happened at Oral Roberts, and it was a powerful night. And, you know, it's, it was a miracle in, in just the very fact that this bunch of kind of, you know – Roughshod hippies were even allowed to play at such a, a, a straight, straight kind of conservative event, and I think everyone was touched and moved by the evening, including us. Wow, we were always, wow. You, know, you know, always part part of that process of getting yeah. touched by God. And Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and you can put a period at the end of that because uh, on the bio here of Love Song, it says through music they touched hearts, broke down traditional barriers. Now, if you knew that you were going to do that you would have probably messed it up. But when we don't know, and God uses us to do that, that's a whole other thing. And that's what I love about Love Song is the freshness of it and, and the fact that they didn't, you didn't know, you just went. You just went and did. So yeah. I love that. You Absolutely sure? accurate. Absolutely accurate. So, Chuck, um, what, I, what I hear weaved throughout your story is the importance of the gospel, evangelism, discipleship, and also the Holy Spirit how he used you guys who were just open mm -hmm. to doing whatever, wherever God was leading you. I want to get your perspective today on some just some recent events. Now we're jumping out of the book, Rock and Roll Preacher, for a few minutes. We've heard about recent mm -hmm. revivals like Asbury, Kentucky, and other pockets of, of, of revival. We don't know the details out of every one of them, uh, but, but we trust that God is moving. We know people will try to manipulate it and corrupt it, but... I just want to get your perspective on that. The, first of all, the need for repentance today. Why have we not seen another move of God like you experienced, like you witnessed, and w the need for revival today? Well, let me just, you know, obviously I've been asked this as well since Asbury because everybody's looking. I, for about five or more years, I've heard people, underpinnings of people saying, 
they either think there's going to be a new Jesus movement, and they're equating it to the, what happened in the 70s, or they're, they're starting one. You know, so, so there's people going down to do baptisms at Pirate's Cove to get the new Jesus movement started. It's not going to happen that way. You know, God did this move sovereignly at the very beginning, and you can't just have another movement because you had a baptism at the same place. So some of that is futile, in my opinion. So I mean, God will use it, and people are baptized, and it's all good But <laughs> in that regard, but it's not necessarily going to start a revival. Mm-hmm. But I think what's significant from my viewpoint is the difference between Asbury and, let's say, Toronto or uh, Florida, what was, uh, what was that down there, Brownsville, mm-hmm. um, was that those movements, and I'm not judging the movement, but they were based more on signs and wonders. People were getting slain in the Spirit and speaking in tongues. What was unique about what happened at Calvary, and I believe we exemplified the general tone of what was happening throughout the early Jesus movement, we were there for three things. We were there to hear the Word of God, to learn the Bible, we were there to worship God, and we were there to win souls. Amen. And repentance is part of winning souls and if repentance if you want to have a revival if you i don't even like that word an awakening or um harvest to me is the best word Mm. um there's repentance involved and so that's the only thing i watch and i'm not judging it i'm just watching it because i don't know we don't know yet like uh like mara said we don't know the fruit of it yet but that's a significant difference to me and i hope that it does what people want, and I hope it moves ahead, and, and, and so far I haven't seen that, that kind of uh, dovetailing thing where it's continuing to spread, but um, let's hope it does, because mm-hmm. we could sure use it, right? Amen. Yeah. Chuck, we got time for another question, and I wanted to just observe, you know, I think that particular time, you know, here we are, if you look at where we are in the in the calendar, God's calendar, where we where we really feel we are, at the signs and the things that are going on, it seems to me that opening the Word of God to this generation, ours, yours and mine, David's, and then prophecy. Um, Hal Lindsay, prophecy coming back to the fore, because it wasn't really talked about. The time maybe wasn't right. What do you think about it? I've heard it said, and I kind of believe this too, that this this particular move of the Spirit was to get a generation raised up to tell people that Jesus is coming back, specifically in the lifetime of this generation. What do you think about that? Oh, well, that was always a theme. Maranatha. I wrote a song about it. Right. <laughs> you know, the master's coming home, and we've always believed that, and we believe it today. Now, we, you know, if we, our timeline might be off, but mm-hmm. I think that's important. To, I, if, I, if I get your question correctly, that, that we are in the end of the end times, if you can't see that, there's a certain blindness. I mean, how much more can we has to happen before we believe we're in the, the end of the end times. Now, whether it's the tribulation or not yet, which in my opinion probably isn't yet, because that's going to be extremely heinous. But, you know, we're in the end times. We're in those times when G- Jesus is coming soon, and I believe that with all my heart. I think it's very important. I think prophetic voices are important. But I also believe that we need to discern all the prophetic voices mm-hmm. because prophecy is different today than it was in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, one prophet for the nation, and he was stoned if he was wrong. Now Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, and we have to weigh prophecy and you know uh, discern it. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important in prophetic activity like like speaking in tongues and all the stuff, the gifts of the Spirit's all important, maybe more important today than ever, but we have to be uh, discerning and uh, responsible in how we how we uh, articulate all that. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's um, 
it's a weird world, and it can get mm-hmm. out of whack very easily, that whole prophetic side of things. Mm-hmm. Well, friends, you can go to chuckgerard.com. Rock and Roll Preacher is the name of the book. That's on Amazon. And you can also go to lovesongtheband.com and find out the status of the documentary. Uh, Chuck, I just want to mention that uh, in my story, I came to the Lord. Uh, I moved up to Southern California after touring with a band. I was a drummer, and I came across two things at the same time, and you're going to laugh. The Maranatha Singers, Maranatha Music, Psalms Alive, and Striper. <laughs> Um, I, I, the yellow and black attack. I, those two, because I was a drummer and I was a rock, but the Maranatha music, the song, that, to this day, I listen to that, the sweet music on that, it still ministers to me, and I think I've outgrown Striper a little bit, but those were both instrumental in, uh, in at least uh, bringing me to the Lord. Instrumental. Instrumental. Nice. Yes. I, I think that's great. Yeah. What, the, well, that's, that's wonderful that you were able to be open to both sides of that. Yeah. I mean, I'm thankful the the uh, music uh, director minister at our church at that time gave me the a cassette tape of Psalms Alive when I just left Tower Records and brought uh, bought Striper and Petra Petra Live whatever that was and <laughs> and Striper and so I'm listening to all this going yes because it's all about Jesus mm-hmm. and the mo- both right. both types of music moved me mm-hmm. and I think. God uses different people to reach people, you know, wherever they're at, whatever your background is. And you've just had such an amazing uh, impact. Uh, and I know God is still using you. And we're just very thankful for uh, your legacy, and including Elisa Gerard Childers. Right. <laughs> right, right. So, Chuck, uh, thank you so much. And, again, um, we encourage people to check out lovesongtheband.com. Uh, you can be traveling in the near future, uh, Chuck. Well, I'm traveling all the time. Actually, it's uh, the ante has been upped here since the movie came out, and I've I've got a lot more mm-hmm. people asking me to come. Um, yeah, so actually, I'm uh, traveling to California this weekend. I'm in Tennessee right now, and um, I'll be doing some dates out there for the month of May. And yeah, it's been busy. And Great. plus projects, I'm also doing my first studio album in 30 years. So wow. that'll be out pretty quick. Wow. So it's nice to be busy at my age. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, we sure do appreciate your time, Chuck. God bless you, and uh, hopefully we'll do this again down the road yeah. when, when the documentary yeah. comes out. Yes, yes, we will. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. Great. All right. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Chuck. All right, guys. Again, right. com. You can go to uh, Amazon, Rock and Roll Preacher. A great book. A if, great you want, read. if you want to get some background on the contemporary Christian music, how that came to be from the Jesus movement and, and all that. So, um, guys, tomorrow we're blessed to have John Leffler back with us, formerly of Steel on Steel Radio. You know, he can speak to any issue, but he's got a lot of strength and a lot of uh, uh, his perspective on prophecy and globalism and what's happening in America. Uh, we'll talk with John tomorrow. I'm um, looking forward to also having J.B. Hickson in on Monday and some other great guests, including it looks like T.A. McMahon uh, next Wednesday. Uh, Mir, thank you for setting this up. We loved uh, having Chuck on. Great story. Mm-hmm. Uh, friends, please continue to pray for this ministry and share the podcast as we know and trust that you do. God bless you. And as always, keep speaking the truth about things that matter.